Hello everybody, welcome back to the opening bell. First show of the new year. We wish you the very best for the upcoming 2024. And we hope that uh, you and uh, your loved ones are well after the festive period. Matt Christie, how are things? Yeah, they're good. Yeah, it was, um, it was a nice, brief Christmas break. Uh, there was a bit more going on over Christmas than usual, as I alluded to in previous podcasts. But you know what, Alex? I I adore Christmas, um, and yeah, so it was it was nice, and I was really lucky to have a few days in New York uh, with my wife and my daughter over New Year, um, and it's the first time my daughter had been on a long haul flight. It's the first time she'd set foot in America, and to essentially witness New York through my ten year old daughter's eyes. I think I can hand on heart say it's one of the most magical things I've ever experienced. Yeah, I bet. Well, just going there, just it's like, like when you go to Vegas for the first time. I mean, yeah, New New York City over New Year. Did you did you large it up down Times Square? Were you among the throng? No, we were not. I mean, because we were not there for long, so we didn't really get into the swing of of New York time. So we were up and at them early, doing lots of kind of touristy things which I'd never done before primarily I'd only ever been there for work um, but we were packing the days and we were back in the hotel largely by six or seven o'clock um, with a takeaway or something like that and then we decide on a couple of movies to watch and we were lucky that we could kind of see what was going on at, time, at Times Square from our hotel and to be perfectly honest with you on New Year's Eve we had a little wonder around that area couldn't really get near it we're told there's going to be a million people there and the thought of standing there in like one degree heat for like seven hours waiting for the ball to drop. <laughs> I think even if my daughter hadn't been there, we'd have steered well clear, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Deli sandwich in hand, home alone too on the telly. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, of course, one of um, boxing's biggest names, one of Britain's biggest names, didn't necessarily enjoy his trip to New York City once upon a time. You were there, of course, when AJ uh, was dethroned by Andy Ruiz. Um, there's a perhaps a, another name trying to pry a, an even bigger shock coming up in 2024 because Anthony Joshua has been pitched up against Francis Ngannou on March the 9th out in Saudi. What did you make of that when the news was filtering through? Do you know what? I think, and I don't know if it's my, my, my perception has changed as a consequence of how well Francis Ngannou performed against Tyson Fury, um, or if there is a very obvious desire for Anthony Joshua to be out and active. I am not nearly as angry I'm not close to being angry about this fight. Some some of the hardcore seem to be. Um, I think if this was one of if this was Joshua's only assignment of the year, and there was evidence to suggest that he is now just fighting once a year, I might find it exceptionally frustrating. Um, but I think in the current environment, and let's not forget what's going on over in Saudi Arabia, the heavyweight division has just had an incredible cash injection. And the whole landscape has changed. Um, fights are just coming out of left field. Um, so I think really what we will see is that the plan here is for Joshua to look good against Ngannou. I believe he will. 
Um, and then I wouldn't be surprised to see him out a couple of months later against maybe even a Deontay Wilder, maybe against a Filip Hergovic for a, for a vacant IBF belt, um, or even against a Tyson Fury if he beats Alexander Usyk. Um, I think there are clear plans now in place that for as long as the money is rolling out of the pockets of the important people in Saudi Arabia that heavyweight boxing is in a good place. All of a sudden, the fights that we've wanted for such a long time are happening. OK, Joshua versus Ngannou isn't one of them, but we should remember in February, a few weeks before Joshua Ngannou, we get in fury Alexander Yusik, presuming that eventually does take place. Um, so the signs in the heavyweight division are kind of what we always wanted. Um, and I said in this week's editor's letter, it's... It really is incredible, even though we're living through this, it's incredible to see the developments and the speed of them in the heavyweight division when one considers that we have to go back all the way to the year of Lennox Lewis before when we could last recognise one champion. Um, so everything that we always wanted to happen is happening. Whether we always wanted to happen, them to happen in the Middle East is, of course, a completely different conversation. But if you look at it purely from a sporting perspective, the fact that the heavyweight division is busy, that everyone wants to fight each other, I believe is good for the sport. Yeah, I wasn't really surprised or even disturbed or maddened by the, the news, to be honest. I don't know if that's just simply because resistance is futile, <laughs> um, whether it's because we've just kind of come to expect these it's becoming more the norm i don't i don't know but either way it is and and i suppose plenty of boxing fans once again probably like they did when fury fought in ganu first time around hope that we get a bit of perspective on as i say not neither here nor there about that as as an approach either I'd, you know we we can't be having people like Joshua or, or, or Fury necessarily fighting for, for us. They're fighting for themselves. But I suppose if if anyone is going to take a stance for boxing, then maybe Joshua is perhaps more someone who's going to, to do that. But we'll see. That's just a wider uh, discussion. Um, we were teased with Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn alongside the, the, the Saudi uh, sports minister motivator we were teased with a picture weren't we before this so you you kind of knew big news was was coming through the idea of them all working together match room queensbury and that's the first of it in the the spring that we're going to uh, see other news lines tio lopez um uh, back on a top rank bill he's fighting jermaine ortiz in february ryan garcia going the way of Rolly romero it seems he's requested that fight not haney to his promoter, it, it looks like Garcia trying to pull the strings both publicly and behind the scenes as well. He's at least he's stampeding over the the public high grounds, uh, looking from the the periphery. Yeah, you can you can admire him for that. I don't think I think there's. I mean, his his narrative around this particular matchup is it's the one that the public wants. If that is true, um, I'm in disagreement with the wider public. I think there, there, there are far more appealing fights for, for Garcia. But I think, as you suggest there, it's a bit of a power play from Ryan Garcia. Um, and in this week's Boxing News, we look at five fighters who could create a lot of noise, not just for reasons um, 
that occur inside a boxing ring because of those power plays that they make outside the ring. And I think 2024, the landscape of boxing, which started to alter dramatically in 2023, could change um, almost irrecognisably in terms of that old school promoter fighter kind of relationship and I think Ryan Garcia could be key in that and I think he has been key in that and he's wanted to be key in that and I think this latest move is evidence of it. I think it's also a statement about Haney pay-per-view Matt as well um, reported 50,000 pay-per-view buys Haney's uh, recent fight Haney getting paid a lot of money but I think Ryan Garcia almost intimating is he worth that, that money not in terms of talent and the show he's putting on but actually the number of bums he's put it on. So I think there was a little bit of that at play as well. And while I think almost everyone's New Year hangover has breathed out of existence, uh, boxing's PED hangover continues into 24, where it left off from 23, with news that Christoph Glavatsky, um has been given a four-year ban for steroids, that um, a test that picked up after his defeat to uh, Richard Riekpoor, which is what nearly a year ago, Matt. So here, here we go again. Yeah, I mean that's the. I mean, on the one hand, you have to say that this is um, no pun intended positive news um, because the boxer has been caught and the boxer has gone through the investigation process that has ruled um, that he should serve a four-year suspension and that is now in play. That all occurred without any kind of fanfare. On the flip side, of course, is that it's an awfully long time for this whole process to take place and I know from speaking to people who are heavily involved in this process that are quite high up, they find that that 12-month period frustrating themselves um hands are tied in that regard there's only so much i think that there's only so many resources um on that side of things that it frankly makes it impossible for it to be any quicker at the moment um that is a frustration that's far from ideal um and yeah certain people on in another business who feel like they're being hard done by um, might say, why are we not hearing about this when other fighters are not allowed to move along with their careers due to this media fanfare? Um, I hope it really doesn't. The reasons for that don't need spelling out. So coming up on this week's show, we're going to uh, talk uh, and praise Inui, who, of course, was in action in between Christmas and New Year. We're going to talk about uh, Virgil Ortiz returning to action up in weight and, and stopping his opponent, Frederick Lawson, inside a round. Premature stoppage, it seemed, uh, preempted perhaps by something in the mind of referee Tony Weeks and then something that he spilled out uh, publicly thereafter. We're going to talk about all of that as a controversy uh, both in and outside the ring. This weekend, Arta Baterbiev up against Callum Smith in a, a light heavyweight encounter of uh, technical punches. Really looking forward to, to that one. And we're going to talk about in this week in history from the late 90s turn of the millennium, probably Mike Tyson's last big win. Also tinged with controversy and not a little spiteful drama along the way as well. So all of that coming up on this week's show. But 
oftentimes at the turn of a new year, we tend to be in reflective moods, think about how we relate to the world and perhaps think about how we can all improve as people or in the areas of our lives or our expertise. And with that in mind, I think it's important for us to reflect on the work that uh, Dave Harris and his merry band of, of, of followers and passionate improvers, the, the work they do for the Ringside Charitable uh, Trust. And with that in mind, and perhaps a plea for what you, our listeners, can do to help in the short term, I spoke to Dave uh, yesterday and asked him, first of all, about all the work that the Trust has been doing in 2023. Dave, first things first, tell me how 2023 was for both you and for the Trust and the work that you were doing. Well, it's I guess it started off, Alex, with quite a difficult time because we are limited to how much that we can offer people. Um, part of our constitution is that not only can we help people, um, but we, we can help them, we can give financial support, which we've done throughout the year, only limited to at the most £500, but it, it has helped a number of people in a very difficult situation to get through. But most of all, our, our whole emphasis is on getting this home up and running and getting it done as soon as possible. It's been, as you know, it's been a tough slog. Boxing, to some extent, has been quite apathetic. When I say boxing, I mean, the general public um, say, you'd be surprised how many people have never even heard of Inside Charitable Trust, but it is getting out there more now. And hopefully, if we can get, now we've got that chink in, in of, of light coming through the curtain with Ben Shalom, we've met with Ben, he impressed me as a very, <coughs> excuse me, clear thinking young man, a man that is very aware of the risks in our sport, as we all are. Um, and he's also aware we should be doing something about it. And it, it was like a breath of fresh air talking to him, to be honest with you. Um, then I had this phone call on Christmas Day, or rather a contact on Christmas Day from him, right at one o'clock, just thinking about sitting down for Christmas dinner, um, to say, Dave, there's... £5,000 coming through for ringside um, on behalf of all the boxers. And I'm listing all our boxers that have been involved in this. And it was every one of the boxer um, stable. So that was great to um, actually see that he, he's actually done something even on Christmas Day. Um, and that quite impressed me. And we're hopefully having a meeting later in January um, when he's down south, because obviously he's northern based, uh, but when he's got the shows down south and um, he's invited us to his show on February the 3rd, but I'm hoping to see him before then to actually sit down and let's get this over the line. Let how we can, whether it's going to be every show where they perhaps put a pound on a ticket, because it's, it's really the everyday boxing man 
that should be paying that pounds. That is one pound. When they, when you think of fighters put their life on the line time and time again, and as a manager and as a promoter from the past, I've I've seen my bosses having to have tubes put down their throat, and I tell you, it's it's not a very pleasant thing. And people need to realise boxing is a high-risk sport. We don't want to change it in any way. But what we do want to do is to ensure that everybody that slips through the net is looked after so that we in Britain have the best care programme in the whole world. And what a symbolic gesture on Christmas Day. But besides that kind of ongoing... Uh, financial support and an intention to to be part of what it is that you're doing. What what other things do you think that Ben Shalom might be able to to bring to the table? I the way that he was speaking, I think he he it, I think he is aware the border control need to be stronger. I think we all think this, and he believes that the broadcasters. I hope I'm not speaking out. This was in a general conversation that he felt all broadcasters should be paying towards the British Boxing Board of Control. We need a strong board of control. And that's all part of Rinside Charitable Trust is to support boxing in this country. Um, and the board of control, I've been concerned about for a number of years that they haven't, they, they are in a very difficult position. They can be sued at the drop of a hat. Um, and I know how difficult it's been where they've had to keep paying out money here, there and everywhere. But if we're going to have a good, strong board of control in this country, which is good for the promoters and it's good for the boxers, I think I go along with Ben. Let's see. Let's see the broadcasters getting behind. And who knows, perhaps the broadcasters should give something to Inside Charitable Trust because... Alec, once the home is up and running, it won't cost the sort of monies that we're needing to try and get now. To keep, we Obviously, we want to be always in a good position. Now, <coughs> excuse me. I'm at the age now where I think I've probably got two good years of, of being able to work like we like Paul Fairweather and... and, um, and um, Karen Knight and myself have put so much effort in over the last few years and of course the other trustees too but they are the ones that have been at it every day of the week doing something we've also got the people who are manning the phone lines that's every working day 52 weeks a year where people can get support and help and it's it's just one of these I've just had a thing come through from as you know, Harold Rainey passed away um, a couple of weeks ago and his funeral's coming up. And Lorna Rainey has said, Dave, please, we don't want any flowers at the funeral, but we would like donations to Ringside Charitable Trust, a charity he loved dearly and that has shown nothing but kindness and support to him and us as a family. And that speaks volumes because that's what, that's what we're about. We're not about... Um, trying to, to hurt boxing in any way. Boxing's our love, like it is with you, it, it is with mm. Matt. So 
we really do need, without doubt, to do something now. And we need to do something. And Frank and Eddie, and if they listen to, um, to your podcast, then I hope they understand. Please, please come on board because now is the time to show you really care because it's not going to cost them any money. In fact, they're going to get tax, they will get tax rebate on the, on the every pound that's, that, that's given. Now, whether they give it at every show in Britain, I don't expect it to come from where they're in other countries, but if any show in Britain, if it's a stadium show, if they want to just keep it to stadium shows, if they were to do that at every show that they put on, so there'd be two or three, maybe four stadium shows a year, and I call stadium shows anything from um, 10,000 people or 5,000 <laughs> people onwards, um, that is going to make sure that within two years we can say, right, we have now got £2 million behind us we now can find the home the right home we now we have a number of names sadly there's a lot of them that have passed that definitely would have um probably had a longer life if ringside um the home we call them ringside rest and care unless of course um i don't know his other name turkey from saudi arabia that gentleman if he'd like to stump up the money um, we call the home whatever they wanted it to be called. As long as the home is there and a state-of-the-art home that offers support to families of boxers. And believe you me, when you hear people crying down the other end of the phone, I feel quite helpless at times, I must admit. But it's something that, that it really gets you right there. Yeah, we. That's why we need to do something. I uh, wish they and you. Uh, obviously, the, the 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 dream for you is is to get the 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 home, the care home, up and up and running. Um, the the short term dream would be that Ben Shalom now on board motivates Sky to get involved, and then drip drip drip. Lo and behold, Frank does the same, BT get on board, Eddie does the same, Dazone get on board. I mean, that's obviously, those are the wheels and the mechanics of it, aren't they? And that, that's the other side of the, the dream. How much, how much more realistic might that be than it was, say, 12 months ago? I'm hoping, I'm really hoping with all my heart that with Ben Shalom, supporting Ringside Charitable Trust. I hope I'm hoping the others will see the wisdom of what he's doing and not see that it's gonna damage the sport. It will do the opposite. It will actually just show the world that we care for our boxers. It's it, the I am so impressed with the jockey <coughs> excuse me, the jockey club in this country. What a wonderful job they've done. And when we had that uh, meeting in London when when um, and when none of the journalists turned up because obviously there was a one or two shows coming up that we clashed with, but what was sad and and 
I've spoken to one or two journalists and they, I, obviously I can see they're in a difficult position. They can't bang on about inside charitable trust when their, their um, steak and kidney puddings of their life is about being able to work with the big promoters and not upset them in any way. And that's tended to be where we haven't, I don't think, from the general journalists. And uh, uh, there are exceptions. Um, the brilliant, you know, and, and I won't name them because it wouldn't be fair to them, but, um, and I don't want to knock the others because we're living to make. But if only they could, when they're, meet, when they're with people like Eddie and Frank, to have the courage to say, why haven't you yet supported Ringside Charitable Trust? Nobody gets paid. Nobody gets paid a penny. Not one penny does any trustee or any ambassador take from the trust. The trust is there. To, we do everything if we go to meetings, we pay our way, we pay our travel, we, we buy our own meals. This is a genuine charity that is not one. We could, we, I'm quite happy for anybody. Our books are online and open anyway, but I'd be quite happy for people to look at anything we do because all we're doing it for is the good of the sport that we really genuinely love and the boxers that are in the sport, particularly the, the former ones. Um, one or two that we, we're coming up with more ideas all the time. We're looking at perhaps some big names, um, walking around the hall so many times, 50 times, or even if it's 15 times around the Albert Hall to raise money, 15 times around the Cardiff Arena, 15 times around up in Leeds or wherever. Um, if we can get one or two big names on board, that's it's about keeping keeping Ringside Charitable Trust right there, bang in front of the boxing world. So we've got well, that. We also the possibility we're even thinking about doing um, a bit of a, a calendar girls calendar if we can get some young boxers um, that are around today, big names that would be prepared to have a that have. I've got a sense of humour. We don't want anything um, that's not very pleasant. We we want them to um, cover themselves well up, but to make to be to see that they're having fun doing it. And um, Derek Rose, the you know, he's a famous photographer from the past. I think sixty years he was he was the photographer for the journalists, um, boxing writers, taking pictures there. Well, Derek said. Dave, I'll willingly do that, and I, I'll get the help from my sons who are also in the photographic industry. I'll get them all on board to help. I mean, there's some great people out there, great people. Um, so all we're doing, Alec, is continually pushing um, the five pounds a month. If only more people would take that up, and <coughs> and I thank those that, that have because what a genuine they they genuinely care for what we're trying to do and that that gives me a lot of um warm feeling inside to think right 
it drives me on. It spurs me on to thinking we can't let these people down. We've got we've got to do it. I don't want to see that what we're doing today is going to fail like it did in America with Professor Jockel back in the 30s, who worked his socks off to get something going in America. And all he was met with was silence. And all I'm being met with, and air trustees, is with silence. But I want to be like the fly on the end of the horse's nose. I will irritate and irritate <laughs> until they think, oh, for goodness sake, let's look at what, what they're trying to do. That's all I ask them. If they see what we're what their plans are, I can't see it's a no-brainer. It's not going to cost them any money, but they're going to come out of it with so much credibility. Um, it's a bit like Ben Shalom. We had 7,000 hits. No, no, it wasn't. It. Sorry, it was nearly 9,000 hits where people had read about Ben Shalom uh, supporting Ringside Charitable Trust. Um, there was 146, or there was the other day, there's probably a lot more now, um, real positive comments on Ben, and there wasn't one negative. And that tells me that Frank and Eddie, I mean, Frank's given a lot to charity in the past, but I don't understand why he's not giving it to the one charity that it's there for those that slip through the net in the, in the sport where he promotes. Same with Eddie. Well, it's just about catching the mood. You see that in the wider world. And, and maybe, just maybe, this is the year, this is the time when we're catching the mood with that. Dave, you, your tirelessness uh, is infectious. I hope that, I hope that it uh, continues for as long as possible. And uh, hopefully lots of our listeners can get on board in the new year. We wish you the very best of luck in 2024. Thanks for your time. Well, Matt, as ever, when... You know, you, we speak to Dave. I know you see him every couple of months just to to debate and discuss and to reflect and uh, perhaps to, to plan about the kind of work that you, we, everyone can do behind the, the scenes. As ever, when you, you hear from Dave, it is a mixture of passion and frustration. Passion and just the endeavour that he continues to tirelessly provide and do behind the scenes. And the frustration that... It's not having the impact that he wants and it's not having the impact that it could have. Now, that's twofold. Obviously, he, we want to get the big hitters behind it. That's the dream. Frank, Eddie, BT, uh, Dazon, Ben Shalom on board. Now, maybe that brings Sky into the frame as well. That's, that's kind of the bigger picture. But short term, the, the easier solve for you, me, and for our listeners, and I've already done it, is just to give a little bit in the short term. Um, and you can, you can, that will have a big impact, whether it's a couple of quid a month, a fiver a month, a tenner a month, whatever it is that you can afford. If you can sign up, standing order, direct debit, that that will have a huge effect. But the, the bigger picture is, is what we're working towards. Of course it is. Um, and I've mentioned this before um, when we've covered this subject and we've covered this subject many times is that I was there at the Boxing News office when we'd arranged a meeting with promoters or representatives of promoters. And I think there are representatives of the vast majority of promotional groups in the country. There's some other really noteworthy figures there. 
And, of course, there were supporters of, of Dave and Ringside in the room, but those that were hearing about it for the first time, the, the thing that surprised me most about that was kind of this sense of indifference that, that was the reaction to, to Dave's plans. It has taken longer than he ever imagined, than I imagined, to get this far. But I think, first of all, we should champion Ben Shalom for recognising the importance. He's had one meeting, I think, no, sorry, two meetings thus far, with with Dave um, and they've got another one planned for later this month to see how they can move that forward Ben Shalom has recognised that now that's isn't it really all Dave is asking for is to sit down with these promoters tell them the plan uh, and ask for their support it's a massive step forward that Ben Shalom one of the three big promoters in this country has thrown his arms around Ringside Charitable Trust but yes it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. And we can bemoan promoters, we can bemoan the A-list fighters for not chipping in. And, and, and really, all they need to do in the first instance is publicly say, we support you. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, we spoke about this, you and I, last night on the phone about how we we're going to approach this. And you said something like, you know, I don't want to get all Bob Geld off about this. And, and you, you have got to be really, really careful, haven't you? You're like, Gish, your fucking money. You've got to be really, really careful. But if you look at our, if you look at our listener figures, which, um, okay, they're not stratospheric, um, but they're decent. And if everybody just gave a pound a month, that would make a huge difference to what Ringside Charitable Trust are trying to achieve. Um, I can't say any more about it, I feel, because to me, this is just, this has to be in place in the sport of boxing, probably more so than any other sport. And it's one of the few sports that still doesn't have an effective aftercare system in place. The board do what they can. I know certain promoters behind the scenes do what they can to help certain fighters, but there's an awful lot that will slip through the cracks. There's an awful lot of fighters that every single listener will be listening to this, will have no idea to the extent of the struggle they face today. No idea at all. It's not necessarily the duty of the damaged boxer or the boxer who has fallen on hard times to scream for help. It's our duty as a sport to ensure that the help is there for them. Um, so we continue. We continue to fight the fight. But these steps that are being taken this year may appear a small one with a donation from Ben Shalom, but there's a promise of help in the future. There's promise of future meetings. They could be huge steps. And they're the kind of steps that I believe will be followed. It's the way the sport works. It's the way the promoters' minds work. Um, if they can see one of their rivals doing something for the good of the sport, then they or those around them should be asking them why they're not doing it as well. And let's 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 be positive and hope that hope that this 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 upswing in ringside fortunes continues into 2024 and beyond. I think it would only take, I think, a couple of minutes listening to one of those phone calls from friends, families, loved ones, partners, um, sons, daughters, cousins, aunts who phone up the 24-hour helpline. You'd only have to listen to one of those calls for a minute or two to, to realise the important work that's being done, the kind of effort that's going on behind the scenes. And just to just to tweak your empathy and, and understanding, you don't, it, it's, 
you, you ha we all have to be adult about this. Same with Tris Dixon's book. You can love boxing and love the sport. And you can also want to do something about the other issues that surround the sport. I work in horse racing as well. That's why sometimes we have horse racing analogies on this show, which some boxing fans can't understand. But I work in horse racing. There's a charity called the Injured Jockeys Fund. Jockeys are falling off horses every day of the week. No one's clamouring for horse racing to be banned on that score. Not on that score. It's part and parcel of the sport. And there are things that are part and parcel of boxing that we need to face up to and be grown up and adult about recognising that. Doesn't mean you can't love the sport as well, like Matt and I do. So you can just give a little bit. It will make a big impact. And then the bigger fight, we can perhaps all try and do our bit behind the scenes. Let me add to that. And you mentioned there, you mentioned early on, and I agree with everything you've just said. You mentioned early on all it would take perhaps is a phone call with uh, one of these boxers, the boxer's family. Um, and I spoke to, I mean, we bo British Boxing lost one of its great trainers over Christmas in Howard Rainey, an innovative, innovative mind, a beautiful mind by all accounts. Um, and he was suffering with Alzheimer's in the last few years of his life. He had a fall uh, in 2021, which is in the thick of one of the lockdowns. Um, and he essentially became immobile. He couldn't then visit the gym. And his brain just deteriorated essentially because he was housebound and it deteriorated quickly. He sadly passed away on December the 23rd last year. Um, and speaking to Lorna Rainey, his wife, uh, partner of 30 years, um, they found it really, really hard. Um, and boxing wasn't necessarily the reason for for for. for the, the deterioration of Howard's brain. He didn't, he, he boxed as an amateur at a good level, sparred a young Cassius Clay, and I've got a good story about that, actually. But um, but th th there was very little options for her. Um, and Carl Greaves has set up a GoFundMe page to give Howard the send-off that he deserves. Um, but speaking to Lorna, and she, you know, she told me some wonderful stories. I'll share one of them in a minute about Howard um, but what she wants she's not asking you know she said I don't want anybody to, to to bring flowers what I want is for them just to make a donation to Ringside Charitable Trust because they're the only ones that kind of helped us um, they stepped in with Lorna who was essentially Howard's carer 24-7 she wanted to take um, children and grand granddaughters away just for just just for a few days but she just couldn't afford any help ringside charitable trust stepped in and helped obviously if their care home was up and running there would be no need for that he would already be looked after and she spoke of the confusion that he felt when he was in a standard residential care home. It's not a knock on this particular care home, but he was walking around. He was talking about boxing. He was asking to asking where his boxing books were, and they were nowhere. Can you imagine if he was in a resident, if he was in ringside, a ringside rest and care home? Um, but on a brighter note, and Lorna spoke about this brightly, is that um, yeah. So he sparred. There were stories going around that he'd sparred sixteen rounds with Muhammad Ali. I said, is that true? No, don't know where they've got it from. It was four rounds and it wasn't Muhammad Ali. It was Cassius Clay. It was many years before he became 
Muhammad Ali, and he was on the way up. But back then, Cassius wasn't the superstar, obviously, that he would become. Uh, he couldn't afford, really, to pay his sparring partners anything. So what he liked to do back then, and we're going back to the early 60s here, is offer a gift to his sparring partners. So after going four rounds with, with, with Clay, um, Howard was presented with a pristine white silk gown that on the back embroidered was Cassius Clay. Howard delighted with this, but he takes it, takes it home to his first wife. She thinks, wow, this is, this is great. You need a gown. So she plucked out the embroidery on the back so there was no Cassius <laughs> Clay on the black and dyed it black so that Howard could wear it for his amateur fights. Oh. <laughs> but as Lorna said, because I said, wow, that, that, that really would have come in handy at some point later in life, surely. She went, well, he, he, he didn't care. She said in the end, it ended up in the back of his car, in the boot of his car, along line, other oily rags. But all Howard ever cared about, it wasn't possessions, it wasn't money, it was just helping other people. But yeah, Howard Rainey, greatly missed, forgotten a little bit, I think. But if you go back and there's videos on YouTube of what Howard used to do with some of his fighters let's not forget the fighters that he trained like Scott Welsh Colin McMillan he took to a world title Clinton Woods who went on to win world titles Terry Dunstan um, he was forward thinking in the extreme and it's a great shame that ultimately the thing that set him apart from his peers his brain is ultimately what let him down but going back to Ringside Charitable Trust if anybody can help even if it is 50p a month a pound a month it will make a huge difference in the long run and to get in touch on Twitter, on X, at Ringside Trust, at Ringside Trust, capital R, capital T, the website address, and it, there, are, there have been a couple, so it, sometimes it's difficult to get exactly what you want, but the theringsidecharitabletrust.com is the website where you'll see the details with a sort code, account number, etc. if you want to set up a standing order, direct debit. So that's theringsidecharitabletrust.com or at Ringside Trust on Twitter. And the bank details, the sort code is 402318 and the account number is 024-011-77. So that's sort code 40 23 18 and the account number 024-011-77. A couple of quid a month, five or ten or whatever it is you can afford. That would go a long, long way. Just as hopefully in 24, we start to take bigger step forwards with that important endeavour. And thanks for your time. Thanks for all of your help. Now, Matt, over the Christmas period, we had on Boxing Day a little treat. Uh, Noya Inoue um, ultimately beating Marlon Tapalas all the way to win all the belts at Super Bantam and stopping him in, in 10 rounds. Uh, it's rare you see a fighter who rarely w loses a round, Matt. I mean, he doesn't just beat opponents. He dominates them and almost always stops them. And this was Inoue, I thought, who was actually taking more chances, a bit more reckless than he normally is. He actually got clipped a couple of times. I think if he doesn't want to get hit, he doesn't get hit. But he took a few chances on this occasion. Or maybe Marlon Tapalas raised his game. Perhaps that was part of it. I don't think so. I think Anui can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants almost all the time. 
I think there's two fighters that really stand out as being kind of head and shoulders above those around them. One is Terence Crawford, the other is Nio Nui. Um, I think in terms of technical skill, you can throw in Alexander Usyk into that, but I think as a consequence of Alexander Usyk operating in a division where he's far smaller than his rivals, um, he doesn't. He doesn't always get the chance to show that domination in the way that these guys do. And I thought Inouye on Boxing Day was. <coughs> he, 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 to me, he looks as good as ever. Uh, okay, he's thirty years old now, and often in those lower weights, this is about the age that they start to slow down, particularly as they're going up through the weights. I haven't seen any real changes, bar improvement. Um, in a new style for several years now. And you're right, he was getting caught, but there was never any hint that he was in trouble. Psychologically, I knew he looked so strong to me. And that's before we even get into what he's doing with his arms and legs, because he's a joy to watch. Um, I mean, for me on Boxing Day, I generally these days realise that I prefer to watch a fight. If I'm not at the contest and I'm watching it on the television, I generally now just prefer to be on my own. Um, particularly when you've got someone like Anui, but because it was on in the morning and we're, we'd hosted Christmas Day the day before, we've got everybody coming round for their Boxing Day lunch when we put all the when you get your bubble and squeak going and um, you have all the leftovers. I've then got various people coming in and asking me who's who and what's going on and, oh, who do you think's going to win and <laughs> everything else. And you're a bit like, we are watching a master at work here. Just just sit and watch it. I'll, I'll take questions afterwards. <laughs> but, it was, but, but in a way, it was also nice for people to see him. Um, but yeah, what, what was their reaction? Yeah, not as impressed as I wanted them to be. Um, but... But I think with a fighter like Inoue, and I think this is the problem with these lower weights, is that he doesn't immediately draw that wow factor. And I think with someone like Inoue, he is really, um, without wishing to make me sound any more knowledgeable or important than I am, he's kind of a connoisseur's dream, isn't he? He is, if you know what you're looking for and what you, you can appreciate every little movement in, in Inoue. And, yeah, I can't see anybody... Um, that is being discussed as a rival for him winning more than a few rounds, let alone winning the fight. And I think that's the difficult thing now is in order for fighters to transcend, they need that rival. They need that element of jeopardy that they can um, withstand and solve problems and have battles and come out with their arms raised at the end of it. That is what makes great fighters and I think that is the only thing stopping Inouye at the moment from going to that next level of fame um, and of, of appreciation I think Akhmedaliev would be a worthy opponent if he's if he's sticking at super bantam I think a, a wired up switched on Akhmedaliev who of course lost to Topales in, in quite a, a stirring close fight he probably got too far behind too early, Akhmedaliev, and Tapal has raised his game. Um, so there is a form line there, an obvious one. Um, Neri and, and Casimero are in the, the same uh, division. But the, I, I've, got a, I've got an idea that's kind of brewing in my mind, and I, I, I sense it might also be in the minds of those at top rank, and that is a big Australian spectacular at some stage 
in 2024, maybe a couple, because you've got Sam Goodman, who's number one with the IBF, uh, about that uh, Inouye's just won. Um, you've got, obviously, Tim Zhu, world champion at 154. We're going to talk about Virgil Ortiz as a potential opponent for him. This weekend, you've got Jason Maloney defending his bantamweight title. Same Maloney, of course, stopped by Inouye a couple of years ago with a left hook. He's in action on the Baterbi of Smith undercard in Quebec on Sky this weekend. So Inouye, maybe against Goodman, Zhu, Maloney, um, throw in George Cambosos. You've got you've got the makings of, of a big Australian stadium fight and ties to top rank. So wonder if that's the kind of thing that we might see th later this year, Matt. Possibly. Um, I mean, yeah. I think I think that something like that would certainly assist his profile. Um, there is still, I think, a lot of romance in, and I know that, that Saudi Arabia at the moment is the place to be for certain fighters, but I still think there's a lot of romance in a Las Vegas assignment for somebody like Anoue. Get the right opponent out in Las Vegas, obviously, kind of top-ranked second home over there. Um, and really make a song and dance about this guy. Um, and that is, I think, what I would like to see for him in the coming year. Or move up to featherweight, where the guy, guys like Wood, Lara, Figueroa and Lopez are, are all are waiting, whether he's going to want to do that, whether he should, whether he can uh, physically. Uh, anyway, uh, everything open to the marvellous Inoue. Meanwhile, last weekend in Vegas, Virgil Ortiz returned um, from an, another... A break the, the sort of post-COVID um, ongoing illness has been a, a real punctuation of of his career, hasn't it? Since twenty twenty, where what I think he's only fought three times and, and breaks of seventeen months in in a year uh, between those performances, um, but he returned, moved up in weight, uh, and stopped Frederick Lawson, the the thirty four year old. Um, with Tony Weeks stepping in rather promptly as Lawson high guard back against the ropes, not throwing punches back, but not seemingly uh, being hurt either. What, what did you make of that? And then we'll we'll go on to the, the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, the, the, initially the stoppage I thought was, was poor. Um, the fact that Lawson hadn't thrown anything back and a lot of punches were being aimed at him. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm really, really trying to look at it from, from Tony Weeks' point of view here before we get into to what happened afterwards. That you could, you could perhaps um, say that Lawson looked in trouble, but to me it was, it was a bad stoppage. It was, it was premature stoppage. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't, a huge surprise when I then saw what I saw on social media afterwards. I was going to say, can you view one without the other? Not now, you can't. Hmm. Not now. Not now. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, people people may have seen it. Tony Weeks posted something that was quickly removed, but the way that social media works these days, it only takes someone to take a screenshot of it, and it's there forever. Um, in that he um, alleged that um, Lawson had been for a brain scan um, and that an aneurysm was found, but then on another brain scan, it wasn't there. Um, the Nevada State Commission have since said 
that two brain scans were indeed carried out, but there was never any mention of an aneurysm. There was a mention of the first test being inconclusive, so they did another one, uh, and the second one came back clear. Um, it's a heck of a thing for Tony Weeks to say if, if, if the Nevada Commission didn't mention the word aneurysm and, and Tony Weeks is throwing that around. Um, so I don't know who's telling the truth there. Um, just because one of them is a state commission doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Um, just because one of them is one of the world's most respected referees doesn't mean, mean he is either. I've seen suggestions that it was an act of self-preservation in, in the terms in, in, in it from the point of view of Tony Weeks in that he was trying to justify why it was such a bad stoppage and he's trying to save his career. Still a very, very strange thing to say. It's an extreme level of naivety if he plucked that out of thin air, the word aneurysm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a case that will that will roll and roll. Um, and if you've got a referee who's fearful about a fighter before the opening bell sounds, questions need to be asked about why that opening bell sounded in the first place. Yes, yes. And I suppose the, 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 the extension of that discussion is, you know, I suppose referees going into fights armed with a, a knowledge of how a fighter fights or where they are in their career or whether they've been stopped before or whether they, you know, they, George Groves spoke about this, didn't he? This, this kind of, this preemptive ideology of referees, um, about his fight with Carl Carl Froch, he spoke to spoke about that in in, in Froch Groves, the definitive story that four part podcast series we we did, a docu series um, about you know referees having pre pre warned, pre armed with information or their own perception of something. I suppose I suppose that's an this is a this is a very serious extension of of all of that, and who knows who knows where the truth lies. Yeah, it's 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 concerning, um, and it's generated a fair bit of attention um, amongst the boxing social media crew. How much attention it has generated out in the wider world, I don't know. But it's these sorts of things that put boxing in a dark place, in my opinion. Um, if somebody from the wider world wants to take this story and run with it and see get to the bottom of it and find out what happened um, then we may not like what they discover um, but we at this point it's a, it's a social media post that was for whatever reason taken down um, and the Nevada state are telling us that there was there was not a problem there was a standard brain scan run um and it was inconclusive so they did another one and that was perfectly fine so he was cleared to fight and the nevada commission are one of the better commissions on the planet um i don't at the same time you know my instinct is telling me that they wouldn't stage a fight particularly one of this nature which okay it was there's, there's titles etc but it wasn't a massive money spinning contest there'd be no reason for them not to pull that fight if they felt that Lawson was in no condition to do so yeah absolutely they've been stringent in the past on certain issues didn't they wasn't Tyson Lewis supposed to be 
there initially and after the brawl in New York they 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 pulled the plug on it if if memory serves so they they have yeah they they've been stringent in the past but anyway maybe more will come out maybe it won't maybe Tony Weeks might find work more difficult to come by in 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 Vegas in the coming weeks and months who knows we'll see how that plays out we didn't really get much of a chance to see Ortiz really in a couple of minutes up at 154 but he he extended his his unbeaten knockout stretch to 20 yeah i mean he's he was he he was and remains a really exciting talent and i think out of all of it you know he might be the one that's that's the most frustrated because he didn't get to he didn't get any rounds in the bank he didn't get to remind people really what the fuss was all about though all those years ago um so I mean, he's talk. They're now talking about a fight with Tim Zhu. Tim's again in a nod to to kind of Ryan Garcia, kind of mapping his own path. Um, Ortiz and Tim Zhu seem to have agreed a fight between themselves on social media. Um, that's a good fight. That's a really good fight. But whether Ortiz has got enough match practice, uh, given his inactivity that you've already described, um, I guess we'll we'll wait and see. I don't think it's ideal for Ortiz to go into a fight with with a fighter who has been as active and as impressive and in form as Tim Zhu on the back of just minutes of ring action. I'll tell you what's a cracker of a fight. This weekend, Quebec, Canada, you'll be able to see it on Sky. And that is Artur Paterbiev, the unbeaten 100% knockout light heavyweight champion defending his three belts against Callum Smith, who has produced two of the most spectacular knockouts you'll see in any year since he moved up to light heavyweight. Smith has got more than a puncher's chance. He's got a live chance this weekend. I have swayed one way and t'other with this, Matt, in my thoughts and in my mind. And I think Smith has got such a right chance here. Baterbiev, I've gone for Baterbiev. When I was asked for a tip, I've gone for Baterbiev. Just really on levels and levels of of performance kind of when it matters at, at the highest level but I think we've seen that there are creaks appearing in Baterbiev's game and won't go as far as to say he's there for the taking but he's looking a bit more human and beatable and it, and that was what made the Anthony Yard fight so exciting I think in the the, the Yard was I mean, don't get me wrong, he orchestrated a lot of the, his own success in that fight, but at the same time, Baterbiev did appear more hittable than he's ever appeared in his entire career. Um, Yard is asked for his prediction in this week's Boxing News on this particular fight, and he does allude to the fact that we just don't know what Baterbiev is going to have left now, even a year after we had that fight. Um, I think if you're kind of... I mean, and thankfully, this is, this is one that, that I didn't preview... Um, Elliot has done a, <laughs> Elliot, El, Elliot actually has done a, a really good job with it um, as ever um, but it's difficult when there is no real recent form and Baterbiev out the two is the more active he hasn't fought for 12 months um, but in the interim of course we knew this fight was supposed to happen set several months ago but it had to be postponed so that um, Baterbiev could have surgery on his jaw um, or there was complications with his jaw, and that, that's you know that's not ideal. It's just not ideal. There isn't any really recent form to go on for these two fighters. I think the biggest Achilles heel for Callum Smith throughout his career really has been the lack of top flight experience, and it hasn't been for the want of trying. 
Um, Callum Smith, re- you still have this feeling about Callum Smith. You don't, we don't know how good he really is, which is ridiculous when one considers that he beat George Groves five and a half years ago. We still don't know how good Callum Smith is. You've always had a sense at super middleweight that he was massive at the weight to the point that he was perhaps not at his best at the weight. Um, Light heavyweight was a class that has appeared to suit him. You mentioned those two knockouts, the first of which came on the undercard um, of the first Alexander Usyk-Anthony Joshua fight, which seems like a lifetime ago in the boxing world. Um, he's had what? So that was September 2021. He's had one fight since then. That was August 2022. So the last time that Callum Smith was in a ring was August 2022. That for me is the biggest problem here facing Callum Smith. Uh, okay, it's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is obviously his opponent. But aside from that, is the fact that he hasn't had any kind of fight in 16 months. Um, that's just not ideal when you're going in with someone as accomplished, as skilled as Arta Baturbiev, irrespective of Baturbiev's own inactivity and Baturbiev's age. And I think ultimately that will count against Smith in the later rounds. Um, I think it could be really uncomfortable for Baturbiev at times. Um, like you, um, when this fight was first made, so I'm going back to when it was made for earlier last year, I was thinking Smith has got a heck of a chance in this. But ultimately, and I mean no disrespect to Callum Smith, he has impressed me every time I've seen him, apart from against Canelo, arguably as well against John Ryder. But if you're betting on Callum Smith in this fight, you're betting on something we haven't seen before, even though there are so many signs there to suggest that he can get to that level. He hasn't been at that level, therefore you're gambling on something that we haven't seen yet. That's not to say it won't happen. Um, this wouldn't be a massive upset in my eyes. This wouldn't be a Lloyd Hunnigan beating um, Donald Curry type affair if, if Callum Smith was to do it in my eyes. Um, Callum Smith, when he's been active, has shown that he's one of the best light heavyweights in the world. Um, but I just think that inactivity, that lack of experience at the top level... Um, I think could cost him when the fight gets kind of to the business stages. Yes, it's it's those. I mean, it could just be about timing, couldn't it? It simply could be about timing and the respective points in their careers. And maybe Smith, you know, could be a better light heavyweight than he was a super middleweight in terms of weight, power, and the combination of that and timing is just a perfect fit for him quite easily. But, you know, those... Groves was injured at the end of his career, so you have to have perspective when you think about that result um, on the resume. And then you lean towards the performances against Canelo and Ryder. Canelo, where he was more or less dominated, and Ryder, where some people think he was lucky to, to get the nod in it as well. And you think Canelo, Ryder, those performances, are, are, they, are they a kind of litmus test of, of his ability or are they not a fair reflection? That might be the crux of whether you think he can win or not, rather than just timing and, and power. Uh, but then you say, Matt, Baterbia might, his record's probably one of style over substance, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, arguably, Smith's one of the better fighters that he's come up against. You could argue that case as well. 
he's gone through a a kind of not a who's who a, a who is who <laughs> in, <laughs> in, in his in his sort of championship reign hasn't he really yeah and that's that's the thing when you look at Baterbiev Baterbiev he's one of he, he's he's not quite up there with the Lomachenko but he's regarded very highly by boxing fans um who know a lot about the sport for good reason. I mean, an outstanding amateur, quite clearly just to watch him go about his business. Um, you can see that Baterbiev is an exceptional boxer. Um, 19 and 019 knockouts. That isn't a consequence of him just fighting fighters that were there to be knocked out. Very often he had to, to craft those openings to knock people out that had never been knocked out before. But you're right, I think Callum Smith would be one of his best, one of, would be one of Baterbiev's best scalps uh, if, if Baterbiev wins. I think you could say that Callum Smith is probably in the top three opponents that Baterbiev has ever faced. Um, there's no secret that the Saudis are, try, are hoping to make Bivol Baterbiev um, after this. Um, but if Smith does a job on Baterbiev, Smith Bivol is every bit as appealing as that. It will be a shame to to us fans who've wanted to see Baterbiev Bivol for several years now. Um, but yeah, the, I, I, if Callum, if if only Callum Smith had had a fight or two last year, um, and it's 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 cruel for Callum Smith really because. When you are someone like Callum Smith who hasn't got the profile of some of those in and around him, that he does have to take the chances when they're offered to him. He could, he had to accept that the fight was being postponed last year. He couldn't risk the date not being rearranged, so he couldn't really have a fight in between. If he had have had a fight in between, it would have largely been a pointless exercise. Um, he runs the risk of a cut or an injury himself. Um, and, you know, you were back when Callum Smith was with Joe Gallagher. Joe Gallagher was so frustrated around the negotiation period for Canelo versus Callum Smith in that it was all kind of last minute. There was no real time for Smith to put in a full camp. He couldn't get the sparring that he wanted. Um, but at that point in time, the end of 2020, and let's not forget what 2020 looked like to the whole world. It was a... Everywhere was locked down. Um, opportunities in boxing were thin on the ground. You have to accept that fight at that at that point. But you wonder if Callum Smith will look back on his career and just go, ah, oh, some of the circumstances around my biggest fights were just so cruel. Um, but boxing isn't always kind, um, and perhaps the boxing gods will be smiling on Callum Smith this weekend. Perhaps. The boxing gods are already looking down on Arta Paterbiev and telling him his time's up. Um, he's approaching 39 years old, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility. No, I think anything could happen here, even although I think the odds should be in Paterbiev's favour. Callum Smith, uh, around 3-1 to one to win the fight and 6-1 to one to win by knockout, if you're looking at some of the odds, even although I think Matt and I lean towards Paterbiev, whose win against Zvojdik, we, we should recall, probably a, a really solid one on his uh, resume. That's coming up this weekend. Jason Maloney on that bill as well. Next, though, it's this week. 
And this week we take you back to the 16th of January 1999 at what was home around that time to Iron Mike Tyson, the MGM in Vegas. Tyson against uh, Franz Botha coming up this weekend. The number two ranked uh, fighter with the IBF. Botha at the time, uh, 39 wins, just the one defeat to, to Michael Moore uh, three years previously. So good, solid fighter for Tyson's return to action after a year and a half hiatus. And the reason for that, of course, was the 1997 ear-biting disqualification in the Holyfield rematch. A public hearing, Matt, a $3 million fine, a suspension. He was uh, enforced to go to psychiatric evaluation, make public apologies. There was an awful lot that had gone on in the year and a half uh, between the time we'd seen Tyson previously and, and turning up for this one. Yeah, it's an incredible time really this period of I mean the entire Mike Tyson journey is just so fascinating um, and I did I had a bit of time this morning so I got up and I watched um, what was actually advertised on YouTube as the full broadcast um, so I sat through say sat through I enjoyed the build-up and then it got to the start of the fight and then it cut and then it was the end of the fight there was none of the fight included so I had to go and find a different a different uh video of the actual fight itself but just the the the, the feeling around Mike Tyson at this point and it's astonishing really that the MGM Grand um agreed to stage it given everything that had happened when he'd last fought there in his previous fight in June 1997 against Evander Holyfield when there was all manner of problems in the MGM Grand, and it wasn't just what was happening in the ring when Tyson took a chunk out of Holyfield's ear with his teeth. Um, there's a lot of background reading you can do to this. There's a piece by Jim White, actually, back when he was writing for The Guardian. Um, he was out there, and he kind of tells the story of the concern behind the scenes with the, with the police. There were 250 armed police inside the MGM Grand, um, on the 16th of January 1999 to preempt any potential trouble um, in the casino. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, Tyson, you see Tyson, and they said he was, he was great to interview weeks before, but in the build-up to the fight, Tyson is getting increasingly agitating, drop, dropping F-bombs left, right, and centre. Um, but you do, there is an interview with him where... He kind of explains that I felt like Norman Bates after that fight with Evander Holyfield because I bit him. And those psychological, psychological evaluations, the conclusions of which were out in the public domain, everybody could read about Mike Tyson. What's going wrong with he, in his head? What's he saying in these situations? Um, Emmanuel Stewart, who was one of the studio guests for this 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 bot but Franz Botha broadcast um, <coughs> excuse me he offers some some insight into Tyson's mind as well um, where he describes that even though Tyson kept apologizing for that incident in the Evander Holyfield rematch that deep down he still believes that he was treated unjustly in that 
he felt he was being purposely butted throughout the first fight and there was no comeback on Evander Holyfield and it started again in the rematch to the point that Tyson felt he, in essence, had to take the law into his own hands. Um, he did so in the most extreme measures, as we know. And actually, th through all of this, through the build-up, and I, I watched that, that uh, full build-up like you did, and it's really, really interesting to, to do that. A lot of, you know, as ever, time and place is so important when you're dealing with um, anything, but, but particularly sport. And if you can get as much of that time and place broadcast, then it often really does bring to life the moment or, or take you back to it if you've already lived through it. And through the fight, and we'll come to that in due course, but through the fight, you really get a sense of that, what Emmanuel Stewart is, is trying to get to the nub of the whole story with Tyson. And you see it through this fight. You see it through all the little incidents, through the 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 arm bending, um, through the complaining to, to referee Richard Steele, through the reactions. You see all of it. It's almost as if Tyson's mentality and how he feels and views the world, how he feels that the world is viewing him. You can see all of that through this fight. This fight is almost a looking glass into to Tyson's mind and into his soul. And it, essentially, what it is, is a persecution complex. It is a feeling that somehow he is being unfairly treated or has been unfairly treated. And there's a really revealing quote in one of those better interviews where perhaps he's in good mood and communicative, as Matt discussed. And he's talking about basically the contrast of where he was to where he ended up very quickly. And he says, one moment I'm in a drug dealer's house robbing and the next I'm getting my hand raised as the youngest heavyweight champion of the world. And you couldn't have a more explicit graphic example of perhaps the root of where Tyson came from and where he ended up and why he was behaving the way he was throughout all of this, Matt. Yeah, uh, I made a note of that as well, that, that particular moment in that interview. Um, <clears throat> but you do, you, you, I mean, I th what's also interesting is, is Ferdi Pacheco is on the broadcast as well. He was used regularly then. Um, and I think Pacheco, particularly at the end of the fight, is quite cruel about about, about Tyson. But I think what he says at the beginning, where he says something like, the problem with Tyson is he has no foundation. His personal life remains a roller coaster. It's always been a roller coaster. I honestly believe if he can get himself settled in life, he will be the heavyweight champion again. And he went on a little bit later in the broadcast. So this is 1999. This is after Tyson has done pretty much everything that he's ever going to do in the ring. Okay, there was the odd highlight reel knockout against lesser fighters like your Lou Savarese's, like your Clifford Etienne's still to come. But largely, he had scaled his highest mountains. And Ferdy Pacheco says Mike Tyson is not a great fighter. Fast forward 25 years, everybody believes that Tyson is a great fighter. Um, I, think it's, I think it's interesting because we speak about it on this podcast in that we will talk about fighters who are active today and we say, where do they figure in history? You, you, you just can't, you, you don't know how they figure in history because you haven't experienced enough of it to make that judgment. 
Um, the impact that Mike Tyson had, even though he was large, not largely, even though he was, there's a, there's a, there's a, fee, there's a, a real feeling that he didn't reach his full potential, but the impact that Tyson has, you have to classify him as a great fighter. He had, he made a monstrous impact in the sport of boxing. Some, some good, plenty bad, but there's very few that have ever left the footprints in their chosen discipline the size of which that Mike Tyson did. That 1986 championship winning performance against Trevor Berbick, that that reverberated around the sporting world. That that still has echoes for generations of people who grew up during that time, like you and I, Matt. That that still has echoes today. It was such a seminal, symbolic moment in sport. It was one of those, you know, Ben Johnson in the 100 metres or, you know, you pick out some of those great moments. That was one of those. In a boxing sense, it was, you know, it was Ali over Sonny Liston. There was, that, there was elements of that and that the run thereafter for three years was just something quite extraordinary. So there's no doubt that has a place in the history of, of sport. As regards this, this is just a perfect snapshot of where Tyson was as an athlete, where he was mentally as a person, all that was going on throughout the fight with Franz Botha, who probably produced one of the performances of his life all round. Jabbing, moving, standing his ground, throwing right hands, uh, mauling Tyson up close, um, holding him. Both did just about a bit of everything, but he was getting the better of Tyson right from the very start, and Tyson was reacting uh, right from pretty much the start or the end of the first round. Yeah, that was the first time we saw that um, by now infamous um, attempt to injure both his arm wasn't it when he got it in a lock and was forcing down with all of his might um on the bone um yeah i mean watching this again i vividly remember watching this fight live at the time and being convinced that i was witnessing the end of the mike tyson story the start of which i had watched with wonder um as someone who was eight nine years old um, by now, I was in my early twenties, and I was convinced that this was this was the end of of Mike Tyson as the fight was kind of developing. My memory of it is that the finish was unexpected, and there was no warning signs. But with the benefit of hindsight and watching it, I mean, I've watched it again. I, this isn't the first time I watched it since then. But this is the first time I watched it where I could see that there were signs that Tyson was coming into the fight in round four in particular. And then round five, there was an awful lot of warning signs, I thought, that, that he was shaping up to throw the shot that he ended up knocking Franz Botha silly with. Um, there's always been the accusation levelled at Mike Tyson when people are picking holes in his resume and his reputation that he never once had, he never once came through a crisis in a boxing ring with his arm raised. 
I think you could argue that he did in this fight. Perhaps the thing that when you're looking at legacies and what have you, when great fighters have done that, they've done so against another great fighter. Let's not call Franz Botha a great fighter, but on this night, as you say, he was probably as good as he ever was. He went in there fearless with a plan that he was executing well, and Tyson was beyond frustrated for certainly the first three rounds. And given what we know about Tyson and what we knew about Tyson then and the volatile nature of his psyche, everything that he'd been through in between the Holyfield rematch and this particular fight, the relationship with the media, um, and the media open about the fact that they're not really in Mike Tyson's camp, some of them. I mean, at the start, as, as they're preparing to make their ring walks, or it's, it's around that time anyway, where they cut away to an outside shot of the MGM Grand. They talk about what this means to Mike Tyson, that he's got to, he, he, he's got to move forward, he's got to improve, and they say something like, well, perhaps he can start by being a little less rude to the media and show us a bit more respect. <laughs> you wouldn't hear that now. Tyson wasn't the first and he wasn't the last fighter to be prickly in interviews. Okay, he was one of a kind in that regard and to the extent of it, but he, we've all experienced fighters in fight week who have not wanted to be interviewed, who have been quite rude and you come away with it with an opinion of them as human beings um, that sometimes perhaps clouds your judgment of their performance in the ring. Um, but the fact that Tyson was kind of almost viewed as this ticking time bomb and he is being frustrated. He's getting points taken off. He's constantly being told by Richard Steele that you're not going to win this on a foul. The fact that he did keep his head and managed to find that opening in round five to, to score one of Tyson's own most impressive one-punch knockouts, if you take away everything that went before, I thought that you can now view this as a plus for Mike Tyson as opposed to kind of getting out of jail which this this fight has largely been regarded as and was commentated on the night as Ferdy Pacheco I think so a really good analysis and and um co-commentator or, or even presenter and interviewer at times on his own around this time he's a really good broadcaster Pacheco he said at the end of this was he lucky and there's no question mark. That it almost deserves an exclamation mark. And it was 10 seconds to go at the end of the of the, the fifth round where they'd actually both been fighting. Um, it just turned into a fight. Both are brimming with confidence. You see the first Tyson jab about midway through this round. And then with 10 seconds to go, Tyson just dips forward and throws this short, sharp right hand. And... The punch, the delivery, the result, but also the way the opponent falls in as well, Matt. It reminded me almost identically to the 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 Spinks uppercut, the way the way it unfolded, the way it looked visually, cinematically, um, almost a carbon copy, although a different punch to the the, the one that uh, befell Spinks in the first. It's it's a stunning shot. Um... It was uh, a reminder of what Tyson does best. Um, he was only 32 at this point as well. Um, and what struck me, 
and I mean this is this is true in 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 all works of life in all walks of life really. But what what struck me while listening to Tyson being interviewed, hearing testimonies of how um, kind of on the brink of a meltdown he was, and then thinking of Tyson now when you see him at ringside, and okay, he still has his moments where he'll lose his rag, but largely he's a reflective. Um, character, a thoughtful character, and you think if only some of that old Tyson could have, he could have had a word with himself. I think the best trainer for a young or even this Mike Tyson would have been a 50-something-year-old Mike Tyson. Um, but maturity nearly always comes too late to get the most out of your youth, doesn't it? Um, that's just life, unfortunately. It is indeed, and all the the ingredients that went into to Mike Tyson's. Um, as perhaps no surprise that we got the chaos both before and after this particular fight. And the post-fight interviews again worth watching, listening to. I need love. I need respect. Says Tyson as he was critical of the the media. Um, introspection of his life I'm ready to die I'm in a hurry to die he said I'm going to be in paradise just some of the words that came out of the chaos of of that late stoppage of Franz Bothan to think Matt that it'd get even worse I mean you know the next couple of years would be that tour of of Britain Scotland the the, the knockouts of Zavarese Julius Francis the Galotta fight uh, all of that was was still to come. I mean, this seemed mad enough at the time, and yet it was going to get even worse. It was, yeah. I mean, this, as I say, this this period of the so there's there's several chunks of the Tyson journey, aren't there? There's there's the the, the first one was that just incredible excitement as he's eighteen, nineteen, working his way to a title shot, knocking everybody out. Uh, the then you had the title reign um, that ended somewhat abruptly with Buster Douglas. Then there was a feeling of excitement again when he came out of prison and he regained some of his belts. But that ended with the Evander Holyfield rematch. And then you go into this sprawling kind of comeback, which is just infused with mind-boggling chaos at every turn. Um outside the ring, inside the ring. There's no contests. Um, there's him attacking referees, uh, labouring to beat Brian Nielsen, to the point that when the Lennox Lewis fight was made, and that's not, even with, that's, that's not even talking about what happened in that press conference when Tyson flew at Lennox Lewis and bit him and then was grabbing hold of his privates and offering all the journalists out in the room at the press conference. The fact that anybody really thought Tyson was going to beat Lennox Lewis, when you look back on it now, is stunning to me because there were a lot of people, a lot of educated people that thought that Tyson could put it all together um, and beat Lennox Lewis. But this was, this was just chaos. This, it was just a long and ugly unravelling um, of a fighter that, that briefly shone ever so brightly. Um, yeah, it's 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 an incredible story, and I've often gone back and looked at um, 
stories of the time, be they in newspapers, be they in boxing magazines, of this period of, of, of Tyson's life. And even before that, even in the 1980s, people were still predicting a really sticky end for Mike Tyson. And that's why now, when those same journalists who are still around have seen what Mike Tyson has become, they label him one of boxing's greatest success stories, the fact that at last he's managed to sort himself out. Just one last thing on this. It was really nice, actually, to see in Franz Botha's corner, Jimmy Glenn. Um, he was his cut man, the great Jimmy Glenn from New York, of course. Um, anybody who has, any boxing fan who has visited New York will immediately say, Jimmy's Corner um, and I went there last week um, because um, and I sat down with Jimmy Glenn a few years before he died um, and it was one of the most memorable interviews I've ever done and there's actually one of my articles on the wall with Jimmy Glenn and I thought right I'm not going to tell Amelie that it's in there I just want her to see it <laughs> but then walked in and kind of looked around and then looking at Jimmy's corner again I was looking at everything through Amelie's eyes as opposed to my own walked into Jimmy's corner after the bright lights of, of Times Square I thought well this is probably not the best place for a 10 year old to be I thought I'll just nip her in in case she's not allowed I'll place her in front of the article um, she took as she was just glancing at it the, bar, the barman spotted her get out get out <laughs> we were not she, 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 she saw it but she couldn't read it but she didn't lose anything in that regard Ah, oh, I was glad. I was going to ask you if you took her there. She's uh, she's already enjoyed her own bit of New York boxing history. Fantastic. Um, well, this was a piece of um, history. Tyson, the, the the wonder kid. Tyson, the the young champion. Tyson, the rapist. Tyson, the prisoner. Tyson, the seeming madman. Uh, and Tyson, the puncher. On this night is what we saw, and another bit of sort of solid boxing history also because Fran, Franz Botha was supposed to have Panama Lewis in his corner and Panama Lewis of course um, was banned from being in the corner uh, by the Nevada Athletic uh, Commission and uh, he was actually ringside but not in the corner of Franz Botha. He's interviewed uh, before the, right, uh, the, the fight as well by Jim Gray if you're going to try and look at the, the full coverage. So that's Tyson against Botha so many storylines and strands that go into that and the fight itself probably emblematic symbolic of 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 where Tyson was as a fighter and as a man almost an insight into Tyson's mind at the time go and watch it he's absolutely fascinating that from 1999 and we will catch up with you again next week enjoy the fights this weekend bye for now 